Well, good afternoon, everyone. I hope you've had a good lunch. Good morning, a good lunch. And um, now we're going to start the, the session today, which is um, uh, drilling down a little bit more into uh, the subject of uh, health and human trafficking. And uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm Laura Letterer. I'm the director of the Bastion Center for the Study of Human Trafficking, brand new center that just was set up at Indiana Wesleyan University, but headquartered in Washington, D.C., which is where I am. Um, and uh, we are hoping to do research to help inform uh, the, the, the work of practitioners and um, policymakers and others on human trafficking. And we're, we're going to be working in four uh, areas. We call it the four pillars. One is um, on the, uh, the victims and survivors, so looking at all of the various uh, um, um, issues that, that, that they face. Another is on demand and demand reduction, kind of try, trying to uh, un, unpack and deconstruct and find out more about the demand in labor trafficking, sex trafficking, and organ trafficking. Um, the third is on the crime of trafficking, so the traffickers and what drives them and what the, these crimes look like. And then the fourth is the business of trafficking. So those four pillars are what we'll be working on, and we'll be taking d discrete research projects. I call them applied research because they're, we, what we hope is that they'll have a beginning and an end. We'll be able to take the findings and get them right out into the field or right onto the desk of the legislators, places where people can make a difference and where if we have good information, we can design good programs. And so um, that work is, for me, very exciting work. I've, I've uh, you know, I'm traveled a long path. I started working on this issue almost 20 years ago, so it's been a long time, um, looking first at the laws that, that addressed human trafficking all around the world and finding that they were inadequate and um, testifying in Congress to that effect, saying even our own law in the United States was inadequate. And, and from that came a sort of surge of, of, um, of, of interest in the policy, by the policymakers in passing a law that would be a model law worldwide that addressed human trafficking. And in the year 2000, we finally, after two years working in a bipartisan way, we had the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which has been an amazing um, uh, journey um, seeing that happen. Um, and then I was, uh, that, that uh, law set up, it, it mandated the creation of the Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons in the State Department. And the White House, which the president was changing, President Clinton was leaving, President Bush was coming in, and the White House asked me to go in and stand that office up because of the work that I had been doing. And so I went to help create that office, and then I moved upstairs to the undersecretary's office, and I was the senior advisor on human trafficking, and I was her eyes and ears all over the world. I traveled to 50 different countries. Uh, I say I've seen every red light district in every, <laughs> every country. I've, uh, um, and um, having that experience also has helped inform the work that I did when I came back home, left the State Department, and um, uh, set up Global Centurion to, to work on, on the demand side, which is where I th thought the emphasis needed to be. Now, this work is really not on the demand side, and so how I got involved in it is an interesting st uh, uh, story. Um, a, um, 
a, a woman philanthropist who was interested in, um, um, well, she's pro-life, and she was interested in whether there was a connection between sex trafficking and abortion. And um, I, I met with her, and I said, I know there is, I know there is, because I've been all around the world, and I've heard these horrific stories about abortifacients and about terrible things that have happened to women and children. We had Rosa's story where she told us that she had had two abortions and then been right back in that brothel um, the next day. And so I knew there was a connection, but um, only anecdotally. And so she said, well, if, if you were going to find out more, how would you do it? And I said, I would ask the survivors because no one else will know. We have to ask them. And, um, uh, and um, at the time, people were saying, oh, you know, you'll never, you won't get, you won't even get 10 survivors who will come forward and tell you what's happened to them. And, um, but I said, well, I, you know, I've been working with a lot of people over the, the past uh, 10 years. Um, a lot of survivors who have who turned around and set up research, uh, not research, but resource um, centers and referral centers and shelters. And, and so um, I started talking with them. And, um, and they said, yes, we'll help you. We'll help you get in touch with other survivors. So I went back to this philanthropist and I said, I think I could do something. I think I could do a set of interviews and, and, and a survey that would help us uncover some of this. But I wouldn't do it by just going in and asking, did you have abortions? Because um, I, I don't want to put anybody on the defensive, and, and, and it's, it, this is such a hard and difficult and painful subject. What I would do is I would ask them a whole set of questions about their health issues, and within that, reproductive health issues, and within that, about abortion. And we'll find out what we need to know. And so um, we, we um, began this work, um, which she funded, um, uh, and uh, and we, we started by saying, well, what are the, what are the possible things that could go wrong uh, for a human being? We knew from Rosa's story and many, many others that, that as I said last night, it, there is physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual devastation. And we wanted to know how do we ask about this and, and um, how do we set up these, these, these sessions so that we can get the most out of them. And, and so we decided what we would do is have small focus groups where we would bring together um, survivors in seven to t- groups of 7 to 12. We would go from city to city to city in the United States. We looked for domestic survivors of trafficking only. We used the U.S. definition of trafficking, which means that they were either trafficked into a prostitution when they were children, which means they were per se trafficked, or they, there was some kind of force, fraud, or coercion um, as an adult, um, w- which made them a trafficking victim. And um, so with, the, with that in mind, we asked our facilitators in all these cities, and we went to 12 cities in all, and we're going to be going to 12 more cities uh, in the next year. Um, uh, you know, um, how, how should we set this up? We'll have the focus group. What we want to do is get some of the story. We want to find out who each of these survivors is. They're not just numbers to us. So if we can have them tell their stories, a little bit about their lives, a little bit about their childhood, something that would help us understand how they ended up where they were, something about the recruiting method of the, of the trafficker, and, and then the modus operandi, how they were trafficked and how that worked, and then how they got out finally, and, um, and then have them fill out this survey, which was a four-page survey, um, uh, that'll give us both 
qualitative uh, information from the interviews and quantitative information from the surveys. And so that, that's what we did. And um, as we began to travel around, we did a couple pilot projects in the Midwest, the word got out and people started to call us and say, are you coming to our city because I have five survivors that want to talk to you? Are you coming to our city because we would like to sit down with you? And so recently when we were in Toledo, we had seven RSVPs and when I walked in the room, there were 25 survivors there. And they all wanted to be a part of this. And they, te- they tell us, we want you to know what we've been through so that we can help stop this so that nobody else has to go through this. So no other young woman or child has to suffer what we've suffered. We know that the, the change needs to happen. And they would write at the top of the survey, call me, I'll testify, I don't care, I want to tell my story, I want to help the legislators. And so we now have about 60 of the, of the 150 that we've interviewed who've said, I'm available and I'll help. So that's a little bit of background on how we, how we uh, did this work and are continuing to do this work. And of course, we're, we're, um, we're, we're fine-tuning it, we're perfecting it. After the first one, the pilot, we realized we needed to have um, a pastor and a clinical psychologist in the room with us because these are very hard stories to tell. And so we always wanted to have somebody who could help if there was a trigger or, a tr- or it reintroduced trauma or um, you know, uh, um, uh, something that I can't do as a JD, as a lawyer, but um, I could have people who, who knew what to do. And we also connected with the resources in the community so that people knew what we were doing. And as much as we could, we worked with the community. Um, uh, there are some communities that are tougher to work in than others, but um, for the most part, we, had, we, we really have had wonderful experience. And, and I've met amazing people along the way, amazing survivors also, um, which is why I'm beginning to say that all of our work needs to be survivor-informed, survivor-centered, and sometimes survivor-led. We have to have the survivors as a part of this because if they were, they're there, they'll be able to help us shape programs that are successful because they know what works for them and what will work. So, so with that, let me go through this. And I want to have a conversation. I don't want to just talk at you. So I've asked, she's running out the door now, but um, I have an hour. So I'd like to stop after about 30 or 40 minutes and then we can hopefully have a back and forth so that we can, I can learn from you also. So this is... Um, Uh, on the health consequences of sex trafficking and, as I said, domestic sex uh, uh, trafficking survivors. And this is just one story, and I put it here because it sort of encapsulates um, all of the kinds of issues that we we, uh, ran into. When I turned 13, I'd had enough of the abuse in my home, and I ran away. Um, I didn't know where to go, so I went to the center of town, and I stood by the town hall. A man saw me hanging out there, and he said he was looking for a protege. Well, I didn't know what that meant, but it sounded good to me. So uh, I started to talk with him, and he said, uh, when he learned that I didn't have a place to stay, he, could, he offered his house. I could stay at his house. And so I went with him. And when we got to his house, he pulled out a bottle of gin. He had me drink and drink, and the next thing I remember is I woke up drunk, and wet and hurt. The next day he took me out on the street and he told me what I had to do. During that time I saw 10 to 20 men a day. I did what he said because he got violent if I sassed him. Over the years I had pimps and customers who hit me, punched me, kicked me, beat me, slashed me with a razor. I had forced unprotected sex. I got pregnant three times and had two abortions. 
Afterward, I was back out on the street again. I have so many scars all over my body and so many injuries and so many illnesses. I have hepatitis C, stomach and back pain, a lot of psychological issues. I tried to commit suicide several times. This was somebody who was trafficked when she was 13 years old, right? Okay, next. So I told that that sort of encapsulates a lot of the issues we encountered when we were talking to these survivors. And I told you what our method was. Mixed method, three components, the the qualitative data um, from the the, uh, interviews and quantitative data from the survey. Next. Um, and uh, sorry, I'm going to have to turn my back because I, I thought I would have a computer up here. But um, so the, in, uh, in the first component, we had it, it actually was a more like 200 um, um, uh, discrete health issues. I call them uh, injuries, illnesses and impairments um, that we drew from the World Health Organization Diagnostic Manual, which is changing all the time. But we took it from the, the I think it's the sixth uh, edition. Um, and um, uh, and they were asked to circle anything, so they're self-identifying basically what they have from from uh, you know the, their experiences in in um, in the health system. Um, uh, and um, uh, and then go ahead. Uh, the second uh, component was these open-ended questions about oh that's uh, yeah the other thing was the healthcare providers. So we wanted to know, um, and we just kind of threw this in at the last minute because the 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 philanthropist had wanted to know about Planned Parenthood. She wanted she was sort of laser visioned on what was the role of Planned Parenthood in sex trafficking, if any. And of course we found out there they are they're they're a part of this problem, um, uh, but it's much bigger than just Planned. Parenthood. It's, it's a much bigger uh, problem than that. So we asked, what type of facilities did you go to um, when you needed medical treatment? Um, and there were a couple who said, I never went. There were a couple, but not very many. Um, uh, and uh, whether healthcare provider knew about the survivor situation, and you can imagine, most of the answers are no, they didn't, or yes, they knew, but they didn't do anything, or um, well, they asked, but I lied because I was afraid because my pimp was right outside. So um, uh, we have a, a kind of a long way to go on this next. Um, and, and, and then, as I said, we asked really detailed information about reproductive health care. We asked about all the ty- types of birth control. We asked about um, uh, history of pregnancies, miscarriages, abortions, um, and, and, and childbirth. And, and we were amazed to find that, that during the time they were trafficked, a large number of women had children during the time they were trafficked, and sometimes those children were used as a method of intimidation and, and a way to get women to, to, to do. I mean, one survivor told me um, I needed diapers, and, the, and, and, and my pimp said, okay, we'll get out there, you know, sell yourself, and then I'll go out and buy some diapers for the baby. Um, so um, we were in, in 12 cities, and we gathered some very brief background and demographic data. If I had to do this over again, I would do it differently. I would have a page um, that was all about the demographic data that was gathered mostly in the interview and mostly informally. So um, uh, in the next set of, of interviews we're doing, we're going to do more on, you know, um, where were you born and, and um, uh, you know, uh, um, 
race and um, ethnicity and um, those kinds of things that because we had, had, had guaranteed confidentiality and anonymity, we decided we're just going to you know, treat this in an informal way and we didn't, we didn't do that, but we have at least a basic bit of, of demographic data. Um, the youngest was 14 years old in Hawaii, um, and I had to do those interviews with those who were under 18 with a case manager there, or I had to do them through the case manager. So we had a number that were 14 to 18 years old, and the oldest was 60 years old in Kansas and had just been rescued. And um, so, I mean, this is, it's, it was a tremendous um, sort of um, uh, 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 breadth of, of, in terms of age. Um, and then, as I say, some recently rescued and some uh, had been out for a while, as long as seven to ten years, um, and much more healed and much re- uh, uh, ready to talk and ready to, to be, uh, be able to share information. So, um, next. I'm sorry, I have, we don't have a clicker here. but And this is um, not a great map. We're redoing it. But it shows you the green are the cities we've been to, the purple are the cities we already have, um, some um, interviews and focus groups scheduled, and then there's a little there's a swath there in the the um, west and southwest that we really need to get to. So if any of you live in those areas, we um, we we want to come to Arizona, we want to come to New Mexico, we would like to come to Idaho and Montana and 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 uh, Wyoming, where we know there are trafficking cases. We 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 um, we know this is going on, but we just don't have a contact there yet. So anybody who might have that. Um, so this now I'll start with the kind of the basic data. And the one thing I do want to say about this is that this. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's really important for um, when, I, when I finally publish all of this, I want to publish the interviews with it because when you just publish the data, you're looking at all these facts and figures and these stats, which are incredibly important, um, but they don't tell the, the, the story of the human being behind it. Um, we had to do this because legislators said to us, we can have every, you know, anecdote after another and te- um, witness after another testifying about the terrible things that happened to them. And people will say, but that's an isolated incident or that was just them. You've got to give us the study, the hard data, the hard, dry data in order for us to really move. And so that's what we did. So you can see 99% had some kind of physical problem, neurological. We took them, we, we organized them as they're organized in the, in the uh, uh, DSM. Um, neurological problems, general health problems, injuries, cardiovascular, gastrointestinal, and then finally dental. And that's not all of them, but that's, those were the top six or so. And that's, I, I think I expected that. I knew that there, was, there, 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 was, there are a, a lot of health issues in um, uh, the, the um, community of those who've been trafficked. So, but that you know, sort of proved um, uh, what we said. And then psychological health problems, again, we knew. But now that we have the data, 98.1% had one or another of the uh, kind of psychological problems that I was talking about yesterday. Um, you know, um, everything from uh, all the, 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 the syndrome that makes up post-traumatic stress syndrome, the nightmares, flashbacks, uh, dissociation, depersonalization, um, you know, borderline um, personality uh, disorder, uh, depression, uh, suicide societal tendencies, and so on and so forth. And you see the top ones there. Um, depression, flashback, shame, guilt, PTSD, and attempted suicide. And, and that, there, that's a huge uh, um, 41.5% during trafficking 
tried to commit suicide. That's a huge number there. That's a, an enormous number when you t- compare it to the general population. Go ahead. Um, and then in terms of reproductive issues, um, 71% were pregnant at one time or another during the time that they were trafficked. 67% had STDs. Um, 55.2% had abortions, or at least of those who answered the question, because I would say there were about, of the 150 we've done so far, I would say 70 or 80 answered the question on abortion. Many of them left it blank. So that 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 number is from those who answered. It's the the stat from those who answered. Um, And I I suspect that there are people who just didn't feel like uh, they could. When when we were going around the room, I would ask, and sometimes women would break down and weep and say, no one asked me that before. No one has ever, in all the time I've been talking about what what happened to me when I was trafficked, no one ever asked me, did you have an abortion? And uh, so we found that um, not only had women had abortions, but some had had multiple abortions, two or three, six or seven. The highest number, 17 abortions during the time she was trafficked. She was trafficked when she was 13 by a street gang, the head of a street gang in Tennessee. Um, And... uh, uh, he, um, you know, he had put her out there, and he was re- basically using abortion as the birth, co- birth control method for this young child. Um, she got out of this when she was 33, when he told her, "You're too old. You have to go into the middle schools and recruit children for me." And then she turned on him, and reported him, and uh, and that led to a huge case, which we just finished. Actually, uh, U.S. just finished prosecuting this guy. He was very powerful. He had a brother who was in the police department. I mean, you wonder how these, these things keep going on in our country. We have our corruption, too, in our country. Um, and, um, but it was her testimony that led to his um, prosecution and conviction, and he's now locked up for 25 years. So, um, And then miscarriages, a lot of people said they had miscarriages, and I didn't know whether that was a euphemism for abortion or whether that was actually, that's actually what's going on. They really... There's, you know, there might be a huge number of miscarriages in this business, and, and um, so um, that was uh, 54% right, you know, 1% lower than the uh, abortion. Pain during sex, and that, that also includes, um, you know, um, uh, infections and, and pelvic inflammatory disease and all of that, that kind of thing. Um, urinary tract infections and vaginal discharge. So these are these are the the, to, the top things that they reported in terms of re- reproductive health care. And then violence and sex trafficking. We we knew from their stories that that um, when we did the pilot um, on this that that there's tremendous violence. And so we wanted to um, have people record because violence is a health issue. And many of these women and children show up in the emergency ward after they've been beaten by their pimp. Or, uh, or, or shot, or stabbed, or burned, or, you know, and um, so these are all health issues, and um, so we asked them about violence, and you can see some form of violence, 95.1%, um, forced sex was the, the biggest one, punched, beaten, kicked, punched 71%, beaten 68%, kicked 68%, forced unprotected sex, threatened with a weapon, 66%, that's huge, I mean, if you have a gun to your head, like this um, a child in Miami told me, I, I mean, I'm sorry, in Hawaii told me, she went out every day because he put a gun to her head and said, if you don't, you know, I'm going to shoot you. Um, uh, strangled uh, uh, and abused um, by a person of authority. That's, that's uh, the police officers and others who were the, were the customers. 
Um, so um, you can see this is a huge part of the health, the health problem. And then we heard stories also that were just unbelievable that you, you, can't, you can't categorize. You know, um, one of the pimps had this um, uh, young woman eat her own feces when she was bad. Um, one of them hung the girl in the closet if she was bad and left her there, you know, in a locked closet. So um, kinds of things that are like, you know, other. <laughs> and then when you ask them, what does that other mean? You get you, you, you get a, a, a you know, description of, of these unimaginable kinds of violence and abuse that go on in this in this trafficking. Great. Substance abuse, we knew this was a big we know that these are um, what's the word, Sherry, comorbid or <laughs> um, they, they go hand in hand. You cannot do this work without numbing yourself in some way or without having yourself numbed. And so many, many of these survivors reported 84% substance abuse of some kind. Alcohol was the biggest one. Marijuana, I think, was next. And then cocaine, crack cocaine, heroin, ecstasy, PCP. And here's another place where I think the self-reporting may not be complete because people are afraid even when you show them, you know, you're, you're um, anonymous. We had started, we, when we started this, we started calling people because we wanted to ensure them of their anonymity, Jane Doe 1, Jane Doe 2, and they said, stop, we don't want to be called Jane Doe. That's what they call us in the courts, you know. We want to be called by our first name. We want to be called, uh, you know, who we are. And um, so that's what we, we, we started to do. But so there is a huge amount of substance abuse. And oftentimes when people come out of this, they need the chemical detox. And it's what, a part of what's been missing from our um, rescue programs, if you, if you will. When I was um, in the State Department, um, we had a big rescue by IJM, International Justice Mission in Cambodia. Um, and um, they brought out, I think, 60 young women and children from, from a, uh, a hotel that was a brothel. And, um, and then um, numbers of them you know, were protesting, you know, we don't want to be rescued, and we, we want to go back, and, we, and, and several of them ran away. I think it was like something like six or eight of them ran away. And, um, and there was a huge kind of fight between Empower, which is another group out there, and IJM about, you know, stop rescuing because they don't want to be rescued. Clearly, you're holding them against their will when you're rescuing them. Well, our ambassador from Cambodia flew in and had a meeting with the undersecretary, and I was privileged to be a part of that. And he said, don't listen to them because these women ran away because they're addicted to heroin and they needed their next fix. And that's the real story of what was going on. Um, next. So victim contact with the health provider. Um, this was, we stopped after we did, after we um, uh, started to calculate um, and tabulate um, code and analyze the, the results. We stopped and said we have to write this up. And so there is an article in the Loyola Annals of Health Law that um, has all these tables in it and, um, and um, our, our sort of uh, analysis of, of, of the data because we, we, we were so shocked to find out that 87.8% of those who were in trafficking situations had visited one or another of these, um, these kinds of uh, uh, health care um, providers 
and then had been uh, had been treated for what was in front of them and then moved right back to their trafficker, sent right back out to their trafficker. And so we realized that health care providers are really the first responders. We've been calling law enforcement the first responders, but health care providers are the first health responder, um, first responders. And so if we can train up health care providers, of all sorts, doctors, nurses, emergency medical technicians. I mean, anybody who is going to be coming in contact with people who might be coming in and would be potential victims. And so they have their antenna up. Somebody asked me in one of the breaks, you know, how do you, how do you look for this? Um, and, and I said, you know, it, this is going, we don't want to tell doctors and nurses how to do their jobs. You know how to do your jobs. We want you to have the information necessary to know what to look for, to have that intuitive ability to, to ask the next question that needs to be asked to, to create that situation where somebody might feel like, I can tell this person what's happening to me. I can tell this person my real story. I don't have to lie to this person and say, no, you know, that's not what's happening to me. Um, and so that's the kind of situation we want to create, a, 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 you know, a trust, safety, security, um, while you're treating the victim for whatever it is that he, uh, she came in for, um, that would then lead to the potential for um, not just rescue, because some people really... Um, don't like that that word, but uh, creation of exit strategies, um, referrals, and when necessary, reporting. I mean, and there's some, there are some places where if Rosa had gone in after all, after she had been beaten around the head, pistol whipped, and she had that broken cheekbone, if she had gone in and somebody had said to her, you know, how did this happen, and created that space for her to tell where she was and what was happening to her, that would have made a huge difference and. Um, you know, all of those hundreds of women and children that were being circulated around Florida and, and North Carolina and, and, and South Carolina might have been rescued, um, you know, years before. So, so th- this, is imp- this is very important work. And um, uh, so they, they're telling all the places that they went um, and then um, uh, other, and we can get to that in a, in a, in a minute, um, what's, and then where abortions were performed. In clinics, we didn't ask them, was it Planned Parenthood? Was it, we, we had a, a blank space where they could write if they wanted to. And so we do have information that Planned Parenthood did um, perform numbers of these abortions. But we wanted, uh, we wanted to gather enough information to show people that it's not just Planned Parenthood. It's, cl- it's clinics, it's na- uh, you know, neighborhood clinics, it's women's clinics. It's, it's, it's a lot of places where, where, where this is happening. And these are people also who need to be trained so that they're not just performing an abortion and sending a woman or child back out into a slavery situation, um, which is what's happening right now. Uh, and then other um, people ask me, what is that 13.5% other? And here again, we heard just the most horrific stories. Well, um, my pimp's grandmother was a nurse, and she had an abortion clinic that she set up down in her basement. And he brought, and he and all his pals who were all trafficking, brought all the girls there whenever they needed an abortion. Um, or, you know, he stabbed me in the stomach. <laughs> and that's how I had my abortion. Um, so, um, uh, you know, that, th- those kinds of things are, are also a part of uh, the, uh, the information that, that we were able to gather as part of this. And then multiple sites, um, 2.7% uh, had gone to different places to, to, uh, to get uh, their abortions. Go ahead. 
And then uh, also type of uh, birth control. We asked about condoms. We asked about um, uh, Depo-Provera. We asked about birth control pills. We asked about the IUD. We asked about the morning after pill, which um, the older um, uh, generation of survivors you know, didn't have at the time, but the younger generation of survivors, they're being taken on a regular basis because any adult can buy those pills and give them to somebody. And sometimes what we're seeing in the clinics and the emergency wards and afterwards is the mess afterwards. And so we have to be alert for that. Um, and, um, and then um, there were a couple that said, and this should be up there, but it's not, that none at all, you know, nothing. Um, and there, you know, you probably could find, if you correlated, you could probably find more abortions if there's less birth control. So now what to do about this? You know, the, 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 the horror part is, um, is, 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 is in those numbers, if you unpack that, 150 uh, so far um, survivors who, who told us what happened to them. But what's important is what's going to happen next and what should we do next? Well, we know that we have to train up health providers. And we know we need to do, we, we have wonderful people working on this. Jeff Barrows is here. I haven't been able to see him today, but I work closely with him. Um, I understand there's another health provider that I have to meet, Gloria, um, and, and I need to meet her. <laughs> Um, at some point, but um, so there are wonderful people working on this. But what we need right now is more than just the one-off trainings here and there, or I was asked to go train here, so I did, or this hospital is interested in training, so we did it. We need a methodical, complete, uh, universal approach to training where we know we're going to be getting both everyone in all of these healthcare provider sectors trained up, who are already in it, and then where we're going to be reaching young people in the medical schools, in nursing schools, in other places, and more than just, you know, uh, oh, this happens once in a while. I mean, really unpack it like this study does so that um, people can, can understand this and will know what to look for. And I think if we have this, if we begin to have this in the academies, then um, uh, when you see it again or hear of it again, you know, uh, when you're in practice, it'll be much easier than trying to train people who have, you know, are just sort of learning about it for the first time. So that, that part is very important. And um, uh, one of the doctors we had uh, testify recently in Congress said it, it needs to be from the academy, through the board certification, up through the continuing medical education, and on out. So it's a continuing process of training because there are always new people coming in and because people shift Positions, because for for a while, um, a couple of the legislators were saying, well, maybe we only need to train the OBGYNs, or maybe we only need to train the emergency um, uh, ward, um, you know, um, doctors and nurses. No, I think we need to train up all healthcare providers, and everybody needs to know about this. And then, you know, after we're done here in the United States, we need to go out to every country in the world and do this too, because it needs to be everywhere, um, so that people know what to look for. Go ahead. So that's a one. For, I call it one T and four R's. You, you can see I like the alphabets and the, the numbers. Somebody kidded me. What about a Q? I want to see a Q. Um, but, uh, so the first R, research. So I, I'm not a healthcare provider. I'm a lawyer by training. And, um, and so 
um, what we need is, this is a fledgling piece of work that I did because somebody came to me and said, do you think you can do it? Now we know that, we, that, that, that uh, number one, it needs to be done and that we need a lot more information and we need to replicate this study because it's not the be-all, end-all. Um, and then we need uh, information on all these related issues, children of survivors. I mean, there's a huge impact on a child when he or she is growing up in a trafficking situation um, even if it's just for the first couple of years. I mean, uh, huge impact. What is that impact? Um, family issues, how to, re- how to best reintegrate into mainstream society. How do we best help survivors heal? And, you know, I, I was just uh, talking with, with a colleague um, and saying that well, the, the, the new in wor- um, thing seems to be trauma-informed care. And um, so we're working that into our roundtables with survivors. But, but um, there may be other, even... Um, more, um, uh, even better tools that we have. Sherry, tell me again what you just told me at lunch. Developmental trauma disorder is, a, is, a, is, is another model, and we're going to have to look at that. So all of this, we need to, we need to, we, we need to have the, 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 um, the, the models and methodologies, and we need to test them. We need to find out what works and what doesn't work and, and how we can uh, uh, then integrate it into. And something I'm doing now as a small sort of follow-up project is uh, a, a small study on resilience. So for the next... Um, 10 uh, cities that we go to, we've added a page on resilience and recovery, and we're going to ask um, uh, survivors, how did you recover and what helped you recover and what are the things that you think um, you know, made you either more or less resilient and, and um, hopefully get some ideas from that because there is um, hope. Uh, uh, in, in, in all of this because, there, I, I mean, I've seen it myself. I've seen many of these survivors turn around and go back once they're fully healed into the community um, to help, um, you know, uh, work on one or another aspect of this. So um, those are some re- recommendations. The first R is research. The second R, reporting and referral. And actually, we, 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 we actually... Um, uh, are going to break that up because one of the doctors um, pointed out to me that reporting and referral are really different. Um, reporting gets into all the thorny questions of mandatory reporting and do we report or don't we, and then we're involved with law enforcement and then we may be endangering the safety of the, the uh, woman or child that came in. And so um, a lot of them are against mandatory reporting. And then there's a couple of us who are saying, if we don't have mandatory reporting on this, we are not going to get to, uh, to the bottom of this. We're going conti- we, to be continually seeing this, and so we're going to have to figure out some way that works for all of us. So um, we're, we're in these roundtables. That's one of the big uh, sort of questions that we're grappling with in terms of reporting. Referral is different. Referral is you come in and you know that this person is in this situation and you know you, get, you can't rescue right now and you know there might be some danger danger there. Um, you know, the young man who's in the, the room who told me that the, 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 the pimp was right in the room and he was demanding narcotics <laughs> and demanding that he would beat them up, beat, beat up the, 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 uh, you know, the health care providers if he didn't get it. And, and so, you know, if you have that kind of situation, you cannot be, you have to f- think first of your own safety and the safety of the people around you and also the safety for the, the victim who is in this situation. I call them victims when they're trapped in it and survivors when they're, when they're out of it. Um, uh, but 
there may be a way to slip them a piece of paper that they could put in their shoe or an emery board with a number on it or in some way to refer them um, or to say, you know, you need to come back and be seen by, by me for follow-up and, you know, I'm going to want to give you a, an exam and you're going to have to be alone and then be able to, to do that kind of work. So a lot more on referral and what that would look like. And, of course, that means that healthcare providers have to know what are the resources out there, what's out there right now, and who can we refer to for any particular, whether it's legal or um, a shelter or, uh, you know, uh, rescue or, or, or even more medical uh, issues. What, what is... What, uh, what, can I, uh, what list can I have for myself and for others? And this is another reason why I want this to be a more methodical approach so that we can begin to think about this in a, uh, in a comprehensive and holistic way. Um, uh, and, um, uh, yeah, here you're seeing a lot, of, a lot of health providers say to us, we can't do anything because of HIPAA. And so we finally got Health and Human Services, Department of Health and Human Services, to put a slide up. And it should be, if you go on their trafficking site, um, they have a slide up right now that should be sort of front and, it should be front and center that says, HIPAA in no way prevents you from reporting abuse of any kind. I mean, you, we have, they have to report gunshot wounds. They have to report child abuse. They have to report child sexual abuse. There are lots of different kinds of ways to get at this, and HIPAA does not prevent it. It's not meant to do that. It's meant to keep the confidentiality of the health information, not to keep uh, a rescue from happening where it needs to happen. Um, Okay, and, and then posting laws. Well, about three states now, um, I think um, um, Georgia, Maryland, and Ohio have posting laws. where, And it's just a, sta- a, sh- a short statute that, that basically says um, hospitals must post um, the uh, national hotline number, the TIP hotline number, and um, um, other information, um, resources, and referrals for those who might be trafficking victims. And so those laws can be helpful, but we have to think through how, you know, how will they work, how will they best work. So these are some of the recommendations we're making. Then there's, let's see, next is uh, response and rescue. Yeah. Um, so, and again, here we have the, the, the people who say, uh, rescue is not, you know, in our mission statement, and rescue is not the right way to look at this, but um, we should use the word respond. What is the appropriate response of the medical provider? And, um, <coughs> sorry, in that situation. And, and I'm fine with that. As long as we have some, kind, some way where we can figure out um, how we should never be sending a child or a woman who's, in, who's being beaten back into a situation where they're in sexual slavery. And however we design that, um, that law and that, uh, that, um, that, that uh, you know, um, protocol, if you will, um, we, we need to be working on that. So those are some of the recommendations. I think that's it. Yeah, and the conclusion is that, um, I mean, as you can see, healthcare providers play a vital role in addressing human trafficking. In fact, they may be um, the only, in some cases, the only people uh, in, the, in the system that see a, a, a victim. Um, and so um, they have, for that reason, special responsibilities to be able to, un- to identify and know how to respond in a situation like this. And, and that's my, my presentation and would love to be able to have some um, uh, you know, comments, questions. Yes. Yeah. And the question is, how often do 
question was, um, are, are these women, when they're pregnant, in, in these trafficking situations, are they, are they coming to the... Um, are they coming to for their you know their monthly care the the, the pediatric care, and if they are, uh, then that's a place where we could intervene. And if they are, then yes, that would be a terrific place to intervene and to begin to because sometimes these these are exit strategies. They're not rescues, and sometimes they take more time and it takes you know that feeling of safety. And um, I had a survivor say to me when I got pregnant, I knew I had to get out for the safety and because I loved my son. And um, so that was my impetus to find my way out. And and she figured out how to connect up with a local in Kansas, with a local group that was working on on these issues, and they helped her. So um, sometimes, you know, just talking to somebody may be able to, to, and and that um, the fact that they're pregnant is a a way to reach them when they might not have been reachable before. Yeah. Did you just look it up? Um, I didn't. I know about it, though, because I, I know that that's what a lot of the research articles say is for healthcare providers to call them because they have 24-7, they have trained professionals available who can walk you through community contacts and what to do as a healthcare provider. Right. Exactly. Um, and I should have had that on my slideshow last night, and I will uh, add that. There is a national hu- hotline for human trafficking, and it's an 800 number. It's run by Polaris Project, and what they do is they, they listen. You can report anonymously. You can give as much information as you want or as little information. You can leave yourself out of it, or you can be the contact. Um, but they follow up on a law enforcement side and on a health and human trafficking side. But as they say, they're only as strong as the community itself. And so if there's nothing in the community, it's much harder for them to, to follow up. But um, maybe before we leave, we can look that number up and say it out loud. Yeah. Exactly. And, and um, I want to separate out law enforcement from the victim help and, and, and services side. They're law enforcement, and what they're going to try to do is stop the crime, and that's what they care about. And they, 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 they care about the, the victim. I, would, I don't want to say they're not caring about the victim because we've been training them to, to care about the victim, but they, they care because they're going to be able to uh, help them prosecute, you know, uh, the, the case. And so, but... Um, uh, you know, I've heard mixed things about the hotline. I think the hotline is terrific, but I don't think the hotline can work all across the United States right now. I think that every community has to have its own set of services and it has to be strengthened in that regard. But it is a, a first place that is uh, that I think is, is useful. Right, right. Um, so did somebody raise their hand here? Okay, here and here. Um, no, I didn't ask that question, though. I, and I could put that at the, in, the, in the next. I could put, I, I know of the, the SART nurses. What I have heard is the SART nurses aren't trained up completely for sex trafficking. 
Um, they're trained for rape and they're trained for um, domestic violence, but we need to, that's a group that we need to train and equip, and it's a, a great resource. So there's some work to be done there. Um, but, um, um, yeah, you're, 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 uh, you're reminding me that there's, there, there are a, a deeper set of questions that could be asked about where, what their interface is with the healthcare system. So here and then over here. No, <laughs> there's so many things I didn't do, um, but I did do a lot. Um, <laughs> but this is all work that's waiting to be done for any of you who are uh, interested in this, particularly the students. These are discrete pieces of research. She just said, did you ask the survivors what could have been done better and uh, to, to help rescue them? What we wanted to ask the survivors is how could the healthcare system have been more responsive? And we did get to that a little bit in the interviews. Um, um, and they said, you know, that people need to ask us and they need to create a safe environment where we can feel we can respond truthfully. Um, uh, and um, so we got some information there, but, but uh, as to the much larger picture, um, that's a, that would be, would be another study that we could t get survivors and ask them what works and what doesn't work. And it, I think it would be a terrific piece of work and would help us. I said, yeah. Uh, I have a Can you say it? Yeah. Yeah, so what they wanted to do was 1-888-3737-888. So it's 888-3737-888. That's not too bad for a... Okay, on this side, here and then here. Connect up with her. She's here today. Yeah. I was just wondering if you knew how to direct us, how to develop local resources, places for women to go. Because I know in my area, just talking to different people who are in crisis pregnancy centers and rescue shelters, these shelters. In Cleveland, Ohio, our domestic abuse shelter, women's shelter, is turning away. Mm -hmm. And the, the children who are being gotten out by law enforcement are being held in UV centers and cycles. Right. Um, and I just wanted to know if there's a resource where we can start finding out how to develop places for, like you said, an exit strategy mm -hmm. or a resource for our areas. So it's a great question. And actually, that's the fourth R. So... Uh, which is not up there um, because I, I, I had added it, but the fourth R is resources. And what we're telling legislators is um, we need a whole a national network of the shelters, serv services that are tailored to the needs of this population, which has been so neglected for so long in our country. And it's going to take... It's, it's not a Marshall Plan, but it's going to take a substantial amount of money to do it right. 
So I look to the domestic violence movement and what they've done. Um, and I, there's a lot I don't like about the domestic violence movement. They make the women and children leave the house. I'm always like, why, why doesn't the spouse, the, the, the guy who's beating them up, why doesn't he have to leave the house? Why do they have to go to the shelters, you know? It seems kind of cognitive dissonance or something to me. But, but, in, but what they have done right is that $5 billion a year, that is through the VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act. Every year, the government gives them $5 billion. It goes to two or three um, intermediaries, and those intermediaries filter that money down to the community, and each community gets about $200,000, $250,000, and that's why we have um, DV shelters everywhere. Um, and, and so that is what we need. We need to take that model and we need to press Congress. If we're going to pass a law on this, we need to have the resources available for it. Because doctors tell me, well, okay, so I identify a victim. What do I do? Because I know that there's nothing in my community that can really help them in a long-term fashion. <clears throat> In fact, if you look up Dr. Soglosa's testimony, she kind of ended by saying, I almost sometimes feel like they should go back to the trafficker because at least he's feeding them and sheltering them. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> um, but, you know, we need this, and we need it now. And so um, that's what we're working on is to add that. And I am told, you're next, Sherry, I am told that um, the... Um, there is a huge slush fund in the Health and Human Services that has been um, building for the last eight years. It has to do with the Affordable Care Act and the fact that the Democrats and Republicans have been kind of fighting over that. But everybody agrees on this, Democrats and Republicans. This could be a bipartisan effort, and this slush fund, I'm told, it's something preventive, something care. It's sitting there. It's huge. It's, it's multi, multi-billions of dollars that could be utilized to begin something like this. And that's where we're headed with this, to work to, to get that kind of infrastructure built into the communities, because it's critical. You're absolutely right. Okay, Sherry. You know, thank you for that. Everywhere I went to interview survivors, I went mostly to the uh, communities where a church had donated a house and somebody who had the passion and felt this was her calling had said, set up as a house mother and, and the law enforcement knew about it and they were bringing these victims there and it's kind of an informal situation, but that's working. It's working in places like San Diego and in Hawaii and in um, Minnesota and in, you know, I, everywhere, all the places that you saw that were green, those were mostly faith-based shelters that had been set up informally and were now providing that whole comprehensive set of services. And then I was just at a, a, a meeting of uh, Wesleyans um, that they're, they're setting up a Wesleyan Justice Network for all the shelters that have been popping up um, associated with the Wesleyan Church. And several of them were saying, we need a house, you know, or we've got the house, but we need this and that sort of thing. So this is beginning to happen in a, in a, a kind of an organic way um, uh, in our communities. And that is the, that's the other solution while we're waiting for the... And maybe we shouldn't wait for government. Maybe we, maybe we don't need to wait for government. We can just do it ourselves. Okay, back here and then way back there. Uh, she's saying, I, I, I have to cut off completely. Okay, thank you so much, everyone. You've been such a great audience. Yeah, okay, great.